Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. It is great to see all of you tonight. First off, you're here at church. So between the Enneagram conference and the fact that some of us have been here since Friday night and the weather and Stranger Things season two, the fact that you're at church tonight is a minor miracle. So extra credit for you. Um, how, is, how is Stranger Things so far? Any? Yes? Shh, shh. Oh, I don't mean like, I don't know. I've not, I don't mean spoiler alert. I just mean, all right, because you're at church. You don't know. I'm so proud of you. I was guessing some of you were up all night for that. Anyway, um, again, great to see you and welcome. And wherever you're at with Jesus, uh, this is a safe place. And we're just really happy you're here. But that said, our church is built around this idea of practicing the way of Jesus. And uh, because of that, every few months we take on a practice from the life and or the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And we're three or four weeks into our fall practice. That is discovering our identity and calling. And the basic idea, if you missed the last week or two, is that our self-awareness or our lack of self-awareness has a direct bearing on our relationship to God as well as on our relationship to other people, our wife or husband or coworker or boss or children or aunt or whoever, and as well as on our relationship to our own soul. Now this is not a new idea at all. In the fourth century, Augustine prayed, may I know you, may I know myself. Thomas Akempis, a towering intellect from medieval Western Christianity said this, a humble self-knowledge is a sure way to God than a search after deep learning. Even John Calvin, that most of us don't think of in that realm of kind of more mystic or spirituality, the opening line of his Institutes of Christian Religion, which is a tome and is thought to be one of the most important works in all of the Western church, said this, there is no deep knowing of God without a deep knowing of self and no deep knowing of self without a deep knowing of God. And then more recently, David Benner in The Gift of Becoming Yourself, a beautiful little read, writes this, Christian spirituality has a great deal to do with the self, not just with God. The goal of the spiritual journey is the transformation of self. This requires both knowing both ourself and God. Both are necessary if we are to discover our true identity as those who are in Christ. Because the self is where we meet God. Both are also necessary if we are to live out the uniqueness of our vocation or our calling. Over and over again, for thousands of years now, teachers of the way of Jesus have said, you can't get very far down the path of transformation until you discover your identity and calling. That's a bit tricky in the modern era with an identity crisis and option after option and decision fatigue and the breakdown of the family and who am I anymore and distraction and numbness. But the good news is that Identity and calling isn't something that you create. It's something that you receive from your creator. It's not something you make up. It's something that you discover as you follow Jesus. You know, we talk about successful people as she's a self-made woman or he's a self-made man, but the person that you are becoming in Christ isn't an accomplishment that you brag about on earth. It is a gift that you receive from heaven. 
So we have this journey to go on of self-discovery that is all wrapped up in our apprenticeship to Jesus. And so there's no better kind of Sherpa for the treacherous road than Jesus himself. Take a look here at Matthew chapter 4. Look down at the story in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Notice that word called, Jesus called them. In Greek, it's kaleo, it's the root verb, it means to call, but it means more than, you know, hey you, come over here. There's all sorts of depth underneath the surface. It's later translated by the Western scholars with this word vocation. So this is where we get the idea of a vocation, or put another way, a calling from Jesus. And at one level, level, our calling is just to follow Jesus. But that implies that there is a journey of some kind that we are to go on. Turn to the right a few pages to Matthew chapter 9. Take a look down at verse 9. Here's another story. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call. There's our word again, kaleo. The righteous, not not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who is it that Jesus calls? Well, it's sinners. And, you know, if you grew up in or around Christian fundamentalist subculture, The odds are you know that word like the back of your hand, but it might surprise you that it's actually rarely used by Jesus or the writers of the New Testament, but it's used three times in this one story, all to drive a point home. And what's the point? Jesus calls who? Sinners. So this journey that we go on to follow Jesus has something to do with our sin. And just if that word is hard for you, just set it aside for a minute. And there's one particular sinner in the story by the name of Matthew. And yes, as far as we can tell, this is the same Matthew that later wrote this gospel that is open in front of you, which is a priceless artifact in human civilization. But you can bet that he had to go on a journey from Matthew the tax collector to Matthew the author of the gospel of Matthew. All that to say, at one level, our calling is just to follow Jesus But yet on another level, this implies that there is a journey that we have to go on, and there are at least two dimensions to this journey, inward and outward. The inward journey, and what I I mean by that, is the journey that we have to go on from who we are to, in the language of last week if you are here, who you are becoming in Christ. It's internal meaning. It has to do with the transformation of the core of not only your identity, but what we call character. And then the outward journey is more what we think of as our vocation. It's what we go out and do. It is our work in the world. Both are part of our calling. Often we just think of the latter, 
Both are a part of our calling to follow Jesus. Now, the plan is to cover the inner journey this week, and then next week, Alan Scott will be here to teach on the outer journey. If you don't know Alan, he is top drawer staff. He's here all the way from Northern Ireland. He's well-known in the kind of charismatic stream of the church. Amazing dude, and he does amazing stuff with the Holy Spirit and his relationship to your job or your work, what it is we do with your life. So please don't miss next week. That said, for this week, the inner journey. As soon as you set off on the inner journey, the first wall that you hit is sin. It's a little bit of Matthew, the quote, sinner in all of us. Now, I know that for a lot of you, sin is a loaded word for all sorts of reasons from childhood, family of origin, upbringing, you were hurt by a church or whatever, so the second I said it, your limbic system just crashed your prefrontal cortex, and like right now your blood pressure is through the roof or whatever. So just take a deep breath and set that aside for a minute. Remember that we live in a culture-wide overreaction, really still to the guilt and shame of medieval Christianity and, and for sure to kind of New England puritanical stuff in early America. But at the same time, we live in the secular moment where we now live in a culture that no longer believes. There's like a culture-wide denial of what theologians call original sin. So right now, uh, pretty much every morning, Harvey Weinstein is in the news. I think our allegations are up to 50-plus women, allegations of sexual abuse. And what's surprising to me about sexual abuse in Hollywood isn't that it's a huge problem. What's surprising to me is that everybody is so shocked by it. And that's not to downplay sexual abuse at all. It's just to say this is an industry built around sexual immorality and adultery and porn and objectification and gender stereotypes. What else would you expect from behind the scenes? This is what fundamentalist Christians used to call Hollywood a den of iniquity. It's not exactly post-hipster Portland language, is it? It sounds like a cool bar off Division or something. (laughs) Den of iniquity. Like, oh, cool, it's a great new place. Let's go, right? I guess what people used to call Hollywood, a den of iniquity, right? So, but it's just, people are shocked that this would happen in Hollywood, liberal, progressive, secular, post-Christian, blah, 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 and yet there's all this muck underneath the surface. And that's because our secular post-Christian world, in particular the west coast of America, in particular a city like Portland, has bought into the lie that, you know, you can have the kingdom of God without the king, in Mark Sayers' language. You can have a world of equality and justice and no more racial tension and no more socioeconomic disparity. You don't need Jesus for that. You don't need to be saved. Hey, we'll take care of that ourselves. All we need is the right president, the right political party, the right political theory, the right form of education, the right redistribution of wealth. And I'm for all of that, all of it. But there's just one minor kink in that idea. It's called the human condition. Doesn't matter who is in power in Washington, D.C., what president, what party, doesn't matter what your socioeconomic theory is, at the end of the day, the wall that you hit by your own self and in our society as a whole is what theologians call sin. You don't have to be a rocket scientist, you don't have to get a PhD in sociology or psychology to figure out there's a part of every single human being that is bent out of shape. We all do some things that we don't want to do and we don't do other things that we do want to do, and even when we do the things that we do want to do, our motives are often nowhere near as pure as we'd like people to think. I mean, except for me, I'm only up here teaching the Bible because I love you and want to serve Jesus. There's no other motivation at all in my heart, but other people I hear really struggle with this. 
And so we just have this part, and we have stuff that's on the inside, and, and patterns of thinking and feeling and relationship stuff and pain and baggage. And if you're anything like me, I see this mirage on the horizon of who I am becoming in Christ. I see me 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road after decades of apprenticeship to Jesus, but yet between here and there is an obstacle, or two or three or four or 20. In the library of scripture, that obstacle is called sin. Now, of course, we think of sin as a religious word that's fallen out of favor, and it is a religious word, but if you trace the word all the way back to its roots in the Garden of Eden, go read Genesis 1 through 3. Sin is, what is sin? It is a failure to trust God. More specifically, sin is a failure to trust God's definition of good and evil, to set it aside, to take on the place of God yourself, to swap creation for creator, to think that you know better than your creator, to redefine morality for yourself, your society, your whatever it is, and then to live in such a way out of your new re redefinition of morality, of good and evil, to live in such a way that causes exile from the garden, so to speak, and in the end, death. The theologian Cornelius Plantinga defines sin as the culpable disturbance of shalom. Only a theologian would say that, but I love it. Shalom, of course, is a Hebrew word that was used for life in the Garden of Eden. And, and literally, shalom means peace. That's how it's translated, but it's so much more in the original language. It's peace, but it's health and it's wholeness and it's joy without limit. When you or I sin, we are culpable in the disturbance of our own shalom, our own peace and health and wholeness and joy. I have mixed feelings about Richard Rohr. One minute he's a genius and the next he's crazy. But I love his definition of sin. It's so good. He writes this, sins are fixations that prevent the energy of life, God's love, from flowing freely. They are self-erected blockades that cut us off from God and hence from our own authentic potential. I love that imagery of a blockade. That's what sin is. A sin, whether it's a behavior or a pattern of thinking or a feeling or a way that you relate or an addiction, it is a blockade. It cuts you off from God himself, from relationship with God or whatever you want to call it, intimacy with the Father. It's a blockage of relationship. Think of when you're crossways with a spouse or a best friend or a coworker. There's a blockage of relationship. There's a distance. There's a mental, an emotional, even a spiritual distance between you and the other person. That's what sin is. We have to think about sin first and foremost most, not through a legal category, but through a relational category. God is your father. You're his son. You're his daughter. And it's not just that there's a line and you cross the line and it's 55 miles per hour and you're driving at 57. It's that there's a father and you're a son or a daughter and there's a relational breach. There's an obstacle now between you and God and because of that between you and you reaching your full potential and all of the life that comes out of relationship with the Father and life as God intended it to be. Jesus in that story that we read compared sin, this is Jesus' language, not mine, to an illness that we need healing from. It's what it means to be saved. The word saved in Greek is sozo and it can be translated saved or healed. Did you know that? It's the exact same word. In English, we have you're saved or you're healed. We forget that in the language of the New Testament, it's the exact same idea, same concept. 
To be saved is to be healed. To be healed is to be saved. So to follow Jesus, you and I have to go on this journey of self-discovery, but the bad news is that means at some point we have to go head on with our sin. And by our sin, what was up with that? Oh my gosh, this is, I'm a bit tired. It's been a bit of a marathon church weekend. By our sin, I don't just mean our behavior. Robert Mulholland, in his book, Invitation to a Journey, which is on our list of recommended reading for the series, it's for sale out in the Annex, has this paradigm from the early church fathers and mothers of four layers of sin that we have to deal with on our journey. The early church fathers called this purgation because it was a kind of, that's not exactly Portland language either, but what they meant by that is it's a kind of purgatory, a kind of burning away of our sin one layer at a time over years, if not over decades, of apprenticeship to Jesus. Now, this for me just wrecked me, so buckle up. The first layer is what the early church fathers called gross sins. Again, ancient language, not modern. This is Paul's lists of sins in the New Testament. You know, murder and theft and adultery and idolatry. It's stuff that most people, even in our post-Christian society, would all say, yeah, that's wrong. Even in a society that has very little common denominator anymore over right and wrong, still most people would say, yeah, that's not right. Then the second layer is what the early church fathers and mothers called deliberate sins. These are sins that are socially acceptable in culture at large, yet are not the way of Jesus. And there's a lot of them. Uh, Easy example is, like for a lot of people, the Netflix queue. So it's socially acceptable in our culture to watch two naked people have sex on screen. If you do it for 20 minutes, we call it hard porn. If you do it for 20 seconds, we call it our Netflix queue. That's not the way of Jesus. That's sin. That's the disturbance of shalom. That's an obstacle between you and the life that God has for you. That will do no good in your life and a whole lot of damage. Not only to your relationship with the Father, there's a breach there, but to your mind, to your imagination, to your own sexuality, to your own marriage or relationship, if you have one. But it's totally cool in our culture. Absolutely. It's even cool in the church for the most part. So many other examples. Materialism is even a better example, particularly as we think about Christmas time. Then just stuff we don't even think about a lot, gossip or even something like cussing. These are deliberate sins that our, our society is like, oh yeah, that's cool, no problem with that, but yet are not the way of Jesus. Now, we're just getting started, all right? Some of you are like, I'm pretty good, I'm okay, just wait for it. <laughs> Layer three is what are called unconscious sins. See, over time, and a lot of you already know this, As you follow Jesus, when you're ready for it, and the Father is so gracious, and he's so gentle, but in love, he starts to reveal to you the ugly bits and pieces of your personhood that early on you are not even aware of, what we think of as blind spots. Usually, but not always, they are more internal than external, more relational than behavioral, They have to do with patterns of thinking and feeling or how we relate to other people. So say the gross sin is murder, the deliberate sin is to yell at, you know, a best friend or a spouse or to scream at your children. The deliberate sin is you've worked through that, but you're still seething with anger underneath the surface. And you keep your mouth shut now, you don't say anything, but inside you're just full of contempt and superiority because I'm so much better than they are or whatever it is. And then of course you have sins of omission. So sins of commission are things that you do 
um, that are wrong, and sins of commission are things that you don't do that are right, then of course you have issues with your motivation, doing the right thing for all the wrong reasons, which if you have a job, anything like mine, is literally a daily issue. And so God has to move so slow, just a little bit at a time, through layer after layer, just to peel it back because it's so ugly. Right? These are blind spots, and often it's because we've not looked there on purpose, because it's embarrassing, or it's hard, or we don't feel good, or we already have guilt and shame and low self-esteem, and we just don't, we're not ready for that step yet. And then finally, you're like, can we be done? No. Finally, some of you are like, I've been following Jesus for 30 years, I'm good, just wait. Finally, the fourth layer is what Mulholland calls our trust structures which he defines as, quote, those deep inner postures of our being that do not rely on God, but on self for our well-being. This is what Thomas Keating called our emotional programs for happiness, meaning the ways that we cope with sadness in life and the way that we, you know, get our happiness or whatever it is. And the, the reason that they are tricky is because often, particularly after you've been following Jesus for a while, they aren't sinful per se at all. It's not a, a behavior or a this or that. It's, you know, just whatever it is. It's too much work or exercise or food or travel, but it's things that we look to for a sense of security that do not go by the name of Jesus. And the danger is every single one of those things can, and most of them in time, will be ripped out from under our feet. And then, who are you if you don't have something to cope with that does not go by the name of Jesus? Now, notice, only the first two layers have to do with our behavior. And if all you really deal with in your apprenticeship to Jesus is your behavior, then best case scenario, you're a Pharisee. The Pharisees were really well behaved. But it seems like to me, when I read the four Gospels, and I might be wrong here, but it seems to me that Jesus was even more bothered by self-righteousness than he was by lousy behavior. And that's not because lousy behavior is no big deal. It's because self-righteousness is really nasty. And both, both are lame, but if, if you only deal with behavior and you do a pretty good job there and you don't go past that, you are easy prey for self-righteousness if you don't actually look underneath. Once you start to get into layer three or four in purgation, you are dealing with what many teachers of the way over the years have called your shadow side. Now your shadow side, it's not language that's used in the New Testament. It's a bit tricky to find because it's not all your behavior. Pete Scazzaro, a pastor that we love, an emotionally healthy spirituality, defines your shadow side as, quote, the accumulation of untamed emotions, less than pure motives and thoughts that, while largely unconscious, think about that for a minute, strongly influence and shape your behaviors. It's the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. It's like we all have a light that we project out into the world, and your light is brilliant and it's beautiful, yet there's a shadow side to it, almost like a backside weakness to your strength. Suzanne, over the last few days, said this a few times, the best part of you is also the worst part of you. Uh, that was, I was just, yes, that's unfortunately very true. So for those of you that were at the Enneagram conference over the weekend, um, I'm a type one on the Enneagram. Some people don't think you're supposed to tell people, but whatever, the cat is out of the bag. And now you all know my deepest, darkest secret. And like, that's why attendance is down. Nobody wants to come to the church anymore, right? Now they know me. 
But on the up, that was a joke, it's okay. <laughs> Hopefully it's not me, it's just Stranger Things. Um, me against Stranger Things, even Jesus. Well, I, I'm just gonna stop right now. <laughs> I'm just gonna stop. So here's where I'm going. As a type one, on the, on the good side, I have, so I'm motivated by the need to be, uh, one way to say it is to be perfect, and even better ways to say to be good. So I have a deep sense of right and wrong. That's a good thing. Type ones are the ethicists of society. But the shadow side of that is it is like takes me two seconds to turn into self-righteous. I can be judgmental. I can be condescending and critical. I can be pharisaical to the ninth degree. I'm just like a Pharisee or a father wound waiting to happen, right? If I'm not really careful in how I follow Jesus. And this is part of my shadow side. And we could all stand up here and say, this is what I have to offer to the world, and this is the dark underbelly of it, right? And I could parade some of you up here, and I could tell everybody else for you too, but I won't, <laughs> right? So this, your shadow side, is very similar to what the writer, the writer Thomas Merton called your false self. And he played with this language from Paul, we read it earlier in Romans, and it's all through the New Testament, of your old self, and your new self, and he just changed it a little bit to your false self and your true self. And he said that your old self is your false self. What he meant by that was a combination of your sin, or what the writer Paul calls your flesh, this animal, primal part of you that is bent away from Jesus' vision of human flourishing, and it's your shadow side, it's like the dark underbelly, kind of the weakness to your strength, but even deeper, he said, it's your by false self, he meant your persona that you live into, somebody that isn't actually who, it's not actually your identity or your calling. It's not who you are becoming in Christ. It's a persona. And this starts really young, usually in childhood. It can be as simple as you were born an introvert in a society of what Suzanne calls the extroverted ideal. And I won't drag you through therapy, but there's all, my own therapy, but there's all sorts of fascinating data behind the shift from rural to an urbanization and new kind of society and capitalism, the rise of that, and how that shifted from the introverted ideal to the extroverted ideal. And so now if you're an introvert, we live in a society that looks down on you. And so when you walk into a room, you have to fake it. Otherwise, everybody thinks you're rude. Um, and you're not rude, you're just, you know, rude. Um, but, you, so you have to fake it. And that's not all bad, there are so many other great things about our culture. But we learn from a very early age, it's a very easy example, to be somebody that we're not. When I walk into a room and say, hi, how you doing? That's not actually who I am, right? That's, that's, that's something that I am slowly but surely learning about how to operate in American society. And so that's an easy example, but there are so many others that are much more to the core of our being. Um, for the young child that's a creative or an artist growing up in a home with a jock father or mother, or who's laid back and chill and in the moment growing up in a home that's all about achievement and the 4.0 and this college or that or whatever. Early on, we believe the lie that we're not loved for who we are. And that lie is so insidious because it's, it's not all lie, it's half-truth. And half-truths are always the most insidious kinds of lies. Because the reality is when our culture comes back and says, you're great just the way you are, we're thinking people. We all think, no, I'm not. Some of me is great just the way I am. Some of me is really a jerk. Like, some of me is really mean and selfish and egocentric and lazy and irresponsible. So it's really good to hear, you're great just the way you are. But then we're smart enough to realize, I kind of like that, but I kind of don't actually believe it 
because it doesn't actually take seriously the sin in my life. So because it's a half-truth, this lie that you're not loved the way you are, which is, which is a twist on the you're not good enough the way you are, it's so, it's so insidious. It starts to seep into our mind and our imagination, and so we start to live into a false self to make our father or our mother or our culture happy, to make ourself happy. This is what I need to do to fit in or whatever it is. And the tricky thing about a lie is if you live a lie long enough, the terrifying thing is that it becomes true. Right? If you live it and you believe it and you act that script out over time, it, what started out as a lie becomes a truth. And so our false self is a mask that we put on and that we see the world through, and then over time we forget that we're even wearing a mask in the first place. All that to say, one of the key tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus is to take the mask off our false self, to face our shadow side in the mirror, head on, take a long, hard look, and to purge, in the language of the early church, sin, layer by layer, from our life, not to feel guilt or shame, none of that at all, you're a loved son or daughter, but in order to step into our identity and calling and experience what Jesus of Nazareth called life to the full. Now, that sounds, okay, whatever. The problem is that we are blind so often we are blind to our own shadow side. The tricky thing about a blind spot is, yeah, it's a blind spot. You can't, you can't see it. You're blind to it. The human capacity for self-deception is terrifying. We know this from scripture, from psychology, and from the morning news. So we need tools to unmask our false self, to drag our shadow side out into the life and expose it, and just to deal with what in the New Testament is called our sin, to put it to death in order to experience resurrection. And one of the best tools that we know for that is the Enneagram. So how many of you were at the conference um, over the weekend? Well, wow, and you're still here. It's amazing. Fantastic. Seriously. So for those of you that were not, don't feel out of the club at all. You have a bit of catch-up, um, but that's okay. Uh, very short version. We sat through 10 hours of teaching on the Enneagram, if I did the math right, and I've been around the Enneagram for a while. Basically, that was an overview. There was like actually a lot that was left unsaid, as fantastic as it was. So very short overview. Enneagram is a Greek word. Um, Ennea is the Greek word for nine. Gram means a point. The Enneagram is a nine-pointed geometric image for nine personality types. Just to clarify, it's not a pentagram. Kind of looks like one. Very similar. Just to make it crystal clear, we follow Jesus, not Satan. So you, you can just <laughs> take it, and just in case that was in question, take a deep breath. Nobody actually knows where the Enneagram comes from. We think there's, I read a whole bunch of different theories. The leading theory is this Christian monk who came up with the seven deadly sins and that it was all based on his teaching. We don't know that for sure. We know for sure that it was used by the early church and that it was used by the desert fathers and the desert mothers. Some people think it's older than the early church based on everything from Greek mathematics or Aristotle to other stuff. The reality is we don't know, but it disappeared for a long time from the church in the West and then it resurfaced in the 1970s in Jesuit spirituality and it has since spread like wildfire, particularly over the last few years. I was introduced to it about four years ago. Now, um, there is no scientific evidence for it at all. There is no scriptural evidence for it at all. There's no, it is a Greek word, but it's not like from Timothy chapter 3, verse 9. In Greek, it's the Enneagram. No, nope, it's not there. It is a Greek word, not from the New Testament. 
It, uh, as Suzanne said so well yesterday, it's not dogma and it's not doctrine, it's just wisdom and truth. And it's basically a model. Uh, there's that great quote from the British mathematician George Box, all models are wrong, but some of them are useful. And that's kind of how we feel about a lot of things, uh, church in general, and about the Enneagram. It's uh, not all right, but it is useful. We think it is very useful. And here's why. Other li- unlike other theories of personality, such as Myers-Briggs or DISC or Strength Finders, and there's so much great stuff out there now that is all a great tool for you in discovering your identity and calling. But unlike all of the other ones, there's a few kind of very significant shifts with the Enneagram. One is that it's dynamic, not static. So your Myers-Briggs or your DISC or whatever, it does not change over your life. Whereas the Enneagram, your type does not change, but your character absolutely does. And two, unlike just dealing with your strengths, it actually deals far more with your weaknesses. So it's great to know that I have this, that, and the other strength. That's actually quite helpful, especially if you're 18 and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. But at the end of the day, it's not that helpful if who you are is a bit of a jerk. You need a little bit more help. Is that right? So it's really helpful in discovering you know, a career path or something like this. Beautiful. Um, but it's not as helpful in dealing with your shadow side. And that's where the Enneagram is so helpful. My favorite part about the Enneagram is it shows you, here's a vision of your personality type that is unhealthy and immature and not transformed by following Jesus. And usually you look at it and it's terrifying. And then here, on the other hand, is a vision of your personality type that's healthy and mature, and after years of apprenticeship to Jesus has been transformed to become more like Jesus, and to become more like your real true self, to peel off layer after layer of false self and shadow side, deal with your stuff, and make your contribution to the world, which isn't be all, you're not one-stop shopping, but to play your part in the world. And, and then once you get into it, you start to chart a little bit of a path from unhealth to health, from immaturity to maturity, from untransformed to transformed. And that is where it is so helpful. It's just a tool, that's all it is. And all by itself, it's um, not really that helpful. It just makes you feel really bad about yourself. But inside the matrix of spiritual formation, inside the safe place of the Father's love over you, it is a great tool to expose your shadow side, drag it out into the light, and to move forward on the path of transformation. The writers of The Road Back to You put it this way, The true purpose of the Enneagram is to reveal, I'm a type one, can I just say, Dave, that should be capitalized. Can we finish that, please, for next hour? Thank you. (laughs) Is to reveal to you, can I say, it's a safe place to say that now, right? Your shadow side and offer spiritual counsel on how to open it to the transformative light of grace. Coming face to face with your deadly sin can be hard, even painful, because it raises to conscious awareness the nastier bits about who we are that we'd rather not think about. No one should work with the Enneagram if what they seek is flattery, but no one should fail to do so if what they seek is deep knowing of self. Now, there are nine types to the Enneagram. do not have time to talk about any of them, but there is the best one, the perfectionist, type one. Then uh, there's the helper, my lovely wife. Then there's the performer and the individualist and the investigator and the loyalist and the enthusiast, Gerald Griffin, and the challenger and everybody's favorite, the peacemaker. 
Now, just a few things for you as you are processing over the last 24 hours or whatever over the weekend from the conference or those of you that are reading the book right now and doing all of the work to get ready for your time with your Bridgetown community. Just a few things to know as you go on the journey. Um, there are wings. You need to know about that and just make sure you do the reading on it, which is the number to the right and the left of you and you take on some of the character traits of that. And then even more important are the stress and security numbers, one of the most helpful bits and pieces of the Enneagram. So there's a number that you go to when you're under stress, when you're overtired, when you're um, underrested, and at times you take on the negative qualities of that personhood, but you don't have to. And then there's another number that you go to in security. When all is well and you're on vacation or you need health and you need healing, that's the number you go to. So I'm a type one, notice the arrows there to four and to seven. So when I'm stressed out, I go to four. And I take on, I tend to take on a lot of the, like, the, the lower part of four. So there's not a lot of fours in the world, but I get all like super emo and melancholy and I just like weep into my tea in a dark corner and I feel like nobody understands me at all in the world and I get all, en envy is a huge thing for me and everybody's so much cooler than me and I go on Instagram and it's everybody's so awesome and I was just homeschooled for so long and I just, <laughs> right? So that's, that's what happens if I don't watch it. But then when I need health and healing, I go to seven. Most of my best friends are sevens. And that's because I'm so like uptight and type A and my inner critic is just there all the time. To just go out with somebody who's just fun. Let's have a beer and let's go out and order another bowl of nachos. Let's do it. And just like, that's like, really? You can do that? You can have nachos? You can have nachos and then you can have them again with, oh my gosh. It's like, it's like this whole thing, right? So that, and we laugh, like the root sin of seven, by the way, is gluttony. So it makes it a little hard, you know what I mean? Am I a, like, anyway, whole other thing. So that's really helpful once you get into that. And then finally, as you're processing, and for some of you like me, when I first read type one, it was like read, literally reading my inner psyche. But for other people, it's not that clear at first, and it takes a bit of time, especially if you're a bit younger, or just like for all sorts of reasons. Don't feel bad about that. As a general rule, the number that you hate the most is you. <laughs> so there are bits and pieces of us in all personality types, but as you read through, the odds are there'll be one that just feels like it's reading your deepest, darkest secrets, and you just think this is the worst human being on the planet. Congratulations, you just found your number. It's a great, great, um, you're ready and off to the races. Now, our practice for the week ahead, again, we are in a practice together as a church, is to do the Enneagram, if you're up for it. If you're not up for it, that's okay. In fact, don't go on this journey if you're not ready to do it yet. If you don't have the emotional capacity or the temporal capacity for it yet, that's okay. Just wait, take your time, but please respect those in your community and to your right and to your left who are ready, who are on this journey. Don't do anything to hinder them. That's all that I would ask. And uh, for those of you that missed the conference, obviously that's the best case scenario if you were here, but that was a lot of money and time. If you missed it, all of our practice is at practicingtheway.org identity and calling. There's a few other ways to do the Enneagram. Really, the next best thing is to read The Road Back to You. That's our favorite book. And if you want another suggestion, we have more. 
And if you want to take a test, you can. The best one's at enneagraminstitute.com, which is a great website. It's a secular website, not a Christian website, but there's all sorts of great stuff on there about the Enneagram. The only like heads up you need is the test is really inaccurate. So Suzanne's quote, I don't know where the data was from, is that 62% of the time it's wrong, uh, just from anecdotal evidence for a lot of people. It's either wrong or it's unhelpful. I think when I took it, it was like, 21, 22, 23% for three different types. It was not helpful at all. And the main reason there is because the Enneagram deals less with behavior and more with the motivation behind your behavior. That's why it's really dangerous to diagnose other people because unless if you know them crazy well, you, don't, you, you know what they do, not why they do what they do. So all that to say, the quickest way to do it, go to the website, take your test, I think it's 10 bucks, and then read the webpage on your number. But honestly, it's really not a good way to do it, and it might point you in the wrong direction. And so just the bummer news is there's no shortcut for the Enneagram. I'm so sorry. There's no app for it. There's no, like, new Apple thing at, like, face scan, and then you, you're a type 7 or whatever, you know, because you were smiling or something. Um, not, not a thing. So there's no shortcut. And like anything in life, the more time that you put into it, the more effort that you put into it, the more that you will get out of it. Now, just a few warnings before you do this with your community or even by yourself. And please listen to me here because like any good tool, it is dangerous. Not bad, but dangerous. So a few just please like rules, a few do nots. I'm a type of one, I like rules, all right? So a few do nots for our church. First off, do not weaponize the sucker because you can. This is a tool for you to help you grow and mature, not a tool for you to help your spouse grow and mature, or a tool for you to help your community or your mom or your dad. It has nothing to do with that. This is not Myers-Briggs. It's not disc tests that you take with six people in your cubicle center and you figure out how to work better together. It's not what it is. This is a tool for you to grow and to mature into the best version of yourself, not for you to tear others down to side. So when it comes to other people, it actually is quite helpful for relationships. That was Suzanne's main emphasis over the weekend. But use it to cultivate compassion for other people, not to manipulate other people or shame other people or as ammo against other people. Use it to understand, oh, that's why what's easy for me is hard for them. And oh, that's why what's easy for them is hard for me. Because she's wired like that, and I'm wired for that. Let it cultivate compassion in you to see them the way that Jesus sees them, and to see yourself the way that Jesus sees you. Secondly, do not label people. So I don't want to hear, you're such a one. Like, two people get to say that to me, my wife and my therapist. Nobody else, all right? And neither of them say that to me. So, case in point. Do not go around, I don't want to hear that's such a four thing, or besides, if, if you know four, there is no four thing. If there's a thing, they stop doing it, right? So, <laughs> see, I just did it. Don't do that, all right? Don't do that, all right? Um, seriously, don't label people. Don't throw out numbers. There's a lot of wisdom here. Don't, like, read a 30-page book and think you know it. Like, come at it with a lot of humility. Third, do not make the, use the Enneagram to make excuses for your behavior. So it's not a cop-out. I don't get to say, well, I know I was really critical and I made you feel like guilt and shame, but, you know, I'm a type one on the Enneagram. That doesn't mean anything. It just, like, there's just a number for my jerkness, okay? So it's not a cop-out at all. And then four, on the flip side of that, don't take your, this sounds a little weird when we think about sin, but don't take yourself too seriously. Laugh a little bit along the way. I honestly think that as Jesus would read our Enneagram number, he would chuckle a little bit, like, wow, you really need my help, don't you? 
just chuckle a little bit at yourself, at the people to your right and to your left. Practice compassion. First for yourself. One of the reasons that there's so much anger at other people in the world is because we have so much self-hate. So practice compassion for yourself. Practice compassion for other people. See how God sees you. See how God sees your spouse, your community leader, your best friend, whatever it is. And then finally, remember who you are. Remember everything from last week. You need to go back and re-listen to the podcast or whatever, re-read Ephesians 1 10 times. Remember, you are not your sin. You're not your Enneagram number. You're not a type whatever. You are the beloved. You're a son, you're a daughter, you are who you are loved by, and it's only out of the safe place of my identity is rooted not in what I do or don't do or my Enneagram number or my shadow side or my past or my present. My identity is rooted in Christ and who I am becoming in Christ. I'm a son or daughter of the Father. It's only out of that safe place that you will ever have the freedom to explore the full range of your personhood, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in order to be saved and to be healed by Jesus. Now, before we end, just for the critic in the room, why all this focus on sin and on our shadow side? Can't we just focus on Jesus? This is a focus on Jesus in a way. And the short answer for that is because you can't change what you are unaware of. David Benner, last quote for our time, writes this, any hope that you can know yourself without accepting the things about you that you wish were not true is an illusion. Reality must be embraced before it can be changed. You can never be other than who you are until you are willing to embrace the reality of who you are. Only then can you truly become who you are most deeply called to be. You know, Freud was wrong about a lot of things, apparently. Not that I have the education to say that, but I read. But one of the things that most people say he was spot on was, was when he said that the things about ourselves that we refuse to acknowledge actually have the most power and authority over our life. His line was, that which we avoid will most tyrannize us. We think that by not dealing with our sin, by not dealing with our shadow side, it will go away. Close your eyes and just wait. But in reality, it makes a bad problem worse. What you don't know can and will hurt you, and tragically, it will hurt the people that you love the most. Ignorance is bliss in the short term if you want to feel good before you go watch Stranger Things. In the long term, it is a disaster waiting to happen. And so the sooner that you deal with your shadow side, the less violence and harm it will cause to you, to your spouse one day, to your children if you should have them, to your family, to your friends, to your career, the sooner the better. So many of you in the room are young. This is a beautiful gift to start the journey now. What in your 20s you think of as a quirk, you know, over time is cemented into your character in your 30s and into your 40s. And at some point you have to jackhammer it out. And often it takes a crisis to even get started. You don't want the time to deal with your shadow side is always now. That's why Jesus would frequently say, come, take up your cross and then follow me. The cross is a symbol of death. It was an invitation to come and die in order to live. 
And it's not an invitation to die to yourself in the sense of your real true self, who you're becoming. It's an invitation to die to your sin, to die to your shadow side, to die to your false self, to bury it six feet under the ground, and then to come out the other side in life. Because on the other side of the cross is the empty tomb. On the other side of death is resurrection. On the other side of you deal with your sin, you repent, you come forward, you confess, you do what you need to do, is freedom and healing and all that God has for you. This is the invitation of Jesus, to go on the inner journey. You know, I think I'm just old enough now to realize the obvious, that is the most important thing in life is the person that you become and the relationships that you cultivate. David Brooks, uh, one of my favorite books is his little The Road to Character, and he opens it with writing about resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are what you put on your resume, and our culture is built around resume virtues. And I'm all for resume virtues. I'm all for career, and I believe in all of that. Come next week. But eulogy virtues are what people say about you at your funeral. And usually it has little to nothing to do with your 401k or your IRA or your job or how many businesses you started or whatever. It's the person that you did or did not become and the relationships that you did or did not cultivate. And at the end of the day, what really matters is your eulogy virtues. The main thing that you get out of your life, the main thing that your family and friends that we get out of your life, the main thing that you get out of my life, the main thing that I get out of my life, and above all, the main thing that God gets out of our life is the men and the women that we become through apprenticeship to Jesus. And you can't save yourself. Self-help will get you down the road. It will not get you to your destination. You can't save yourself. And that is the beauty of Jesus. Come, follow me, and he will save you. He will heal you. Come die, and he will give you life to the full. Let's stand and pray together.